Good morning. Thank you for coming. I'd like to welcome you here to the Carnegie Hall. Um, <laughs> what we discussed yesterday was we went on a tirade against self-esteem. We are very much, oppo very much opposed to it. We said that self-esteem threatens to destroy our personas. Self-esteem is the ultimate enemy, the foe that seeks to prey upon the unwitting victim, the most insidious of evil traits that a person can possibly contain within himself. This, of course, met opposition. People were saying, Oh, but Rabbi, if you don't have self-esteem, how will you ever achieve anything in life? And Rabbi, self-esteem is so important. Rabbi, you need self-esteem, otherwise you'll be a nothing, you'll be a schmutter, you'll be an absolute piece of scum at the bottom of a bucket. Um, and we said, perhaps not. And we would define self-esteem as being a contingency-based evaluation system of who we are. In other words, an establishment on a, of an identity by using a set of contingencies, of causalities, of saying, I feel this way about myself because of that. I feel good about myself because I'm clever, extremely good-looking, well-dressed, I have this watch on my hand, I drive <laughs> that car with the big P at the back, Porsche. <laughs> Porsche. It's Porsche. Um, or love to have Porsche. It could be, you know, it could be even greater if I'm more cautious, so then I'll drive uh, Ferrari. Ferrari? Ferrari. So, so you said Ferrari. 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 <laughs> um, it depends how cautious I am. depends on my level of importance. But all those things are self-esteem. Again, I'm making a bit of a parody, but even in a deeper sense, a person has self-esteem because he goes and helps widows and orphans. A person has self-esteem. It doesn't make a difference what it is. It can be the loftiest thing in the world or the lowliest thing in the world, the most base person can have self-esteem because he's the guy that beats up all the other little kids. Yeah, look at me! <laughs> what a hero. Um, <laughs> a person can derive his self-esteem from a variety of different areas. But the point is that the system, the mechanic is, because of this in my life, which is tangible, measurable, I feel this about myself. That's a relationship. What we did in our show yesterday is we um, suggested an alternative to that and perhaps discussed and opened up a different way of seeing self and went even further and said that perhaps that presentation, that type of self-construction is intrinsically negative in the spiritual perspective and can never advance a person very far in Torah. In fact, for a person to move forward in Torah, he probably has, has to dispel that paradigm of self-esteem and opt for a completely different vision of self. And it was, it was shocking in its, in, its, in its newness to many of us. Avshalom himself was deeply shocked. Still is deeply shocked. 
And then we said as follows. We said that we brought an analogy between the manifestation of God in the world and the relationship, let's put it this way, between God and the physical world. And we said that the notion of idolatry, amongst other things, is to ascribe finite boundaries to the godly. To say, I can bow down to this idol stroke, tree stroke, dust of my feet, as the Rashi points out in the case of Abraham, our forefather, exactly what dust is and what feet are and why is it that people would even think about bowing down to the dust of their feet and the relationship between the two different components of dust, the dust from which man was formed, dust being something which combines, that builds the earth which grows and the dust which causes separation from dust to dust man doth go and the dust which dissolves to types of dust the difference between afar and avak the difference between a reg without going into the depth of it all because we don't have the time the patience or perhaps certainly not me the understanding if a person takes something concrete and physical and tangible and says, there's God, points a finger and, as it were, limits, creates a finite boundary around that object, that's, that's, that's the absolute antithesis to the monotheism that Judaism preaches, that Judaism espouses. Judaism believes in the absolute, absolute unity of God. When we say Shema Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, we mean you can't divide up God. You can't. There's a oneness. There's a unity. And that unity completely, completely filters throughout all of creation. And the way we perceive the natural world, of course we see God in the world, but we see the physical world as a utensil as a vessel for expression. It's not intrinsic, it's just a means, it's a tool to express a different power that God has. But it's not God, it's an expression. And if you do say it's God, so that's when you already lapse into idolatry. The notion of the spiritual means it has to be without the physical boundaries and divisions and disparities. It's intrinsically simple and unified. If so, that notion is not only true of the relationship of the creator to the created world, but there's a direct analogy between di- direct analogy between ana- an excuse me, just uh, had a bit of a problem with the word search there. There's a direct analogy between God's Hashem, the Abish's relationship to His world and our Neshama's relationship to our world, that's our body, our emotions, our thoughts, they have a correlation. In fact, we can set up almost an equation between the two and say what the Creator is to the created world, the Neshama is to the Guf, the soul is to the body. And the same traps you can fall into and perhaps lapse into Avoid Zora, idolatry, by ascribing physical form to the spiritual manifestation of God in this world, ironically, in terms of ourselves, we can run the same risk. Because if we acknowledge 
which as Jews we are proud to do that the essence of who we are the ultimate definition of self is the neshama that's the eternal spark within that's the essence which when everything else melts away remains that's the eternal that's the immortal that's who we are once that's been acknowledged and its spiritual nature being proclaimed the minute you start to try to make that tangible you essentially become the one that commits the transgression of idolatry what you're saying is that that's not man this is man he's defined by these narrow parameters perhaps i'm being too abstract Perhaps I'm being too vague, perhaps I'm being too ethereal. I'm going to try and make it slightly more practical and tangible. If we relate to ourselves as our neshama, that means we look at what we've done, let's focus on the good that we've done, not as being ourselves, but our talents and deeds are ways whereby our deeper, pure spiritual essence used the physical to manifest itself. But it's not the limitation. It can't be limited by it. When I have been able to, for example, go into a destitute, into a place where there's no one there to help, and feed the poor, and clothe them, and speak to them with tremendous care and concern and I go to a small deserted room and I see there's a family where they have no bread to eat and I go and I buy them bread and I, I take care of them so that doesn't make me that shows me the minute I say I am something because I did that I'm trying to locate my identity in that act I, or even if I go one step back and I say I am great because I'm a kind person even that is too tangible rather what I have to say is the neshama which can't be limited I saw it sparkling through using acts of kindness I see it manifest just like when the Jewish people saw the hand of God in the land of Egypt it's not that they saw God they saw the manifestation of God God is way above and beyond all of that but they said we see the kindness we see the greatness we see the control when you see your acts of kindness you see the same manifest manifestation of your neshama if you stop and cut off the act from the neshama and you say I'm a good person I'm a kind person not that there is kindness in me which my neshama uses but there's much more than that behind it the minute I stop at the act of kindness and say I am good because of that I create a contingency I build myself on what I've done I build myself on my trait then I've cut myself off from my essential being I've denied the spirituality I've committed an internal act of idol worship did that make it more tangible? Perhaps? Yes? So that's a fascinating insight into self. It means that the notion of self is in its essence the connection to the spiritual being that I am which completely transcends everything I've done, thought or even spoken. Nothing that is connected to my outward manifestation is essentially me. It's been used to express me. Referring to, again, only on the side of good, we have to, when we introduce the notion of be deeds which are not healthy, which are coming from another place, so then that 
complicates things. But for the moment, let's keep the model simple in order to gain understanding, and let's focus on the good. Are you all following me, those of you who aren't falling asleep? Um, yes, Calvin, you're one of them. Who are not falling asleep. So when, you, so when you're saying, when you do something, that's, that's um, using a manifestation of yourself. So if you do a whole lot of different things, and you can look at how your neshama interact in the good in a variety of different ways, do you start to begin to identify what it itself is, and um, be able to um, then define that that is it? You, you can see, you can't, you can never, you can never say it is it because it's beyond it, it's beyond definition. But what you can say is, you can see the greatness, you can see the kindness, you can see the strength. You can see. But you look at some two different people and you see one person, the has manifests himself in one way and someone else. In Absolutely, there's diversity. And you can describe. You can see different facets of neshamas, but you can't ever box the neshama. Everyone's got different neshamas. Everyone's got different neshamas. Just like when you see, in other words, just like when you see the world, let's say in the times of the miraculous, when you saw Hashem's hand being demonstrated, so he demonstrated kiviyochel, different powers, different forces, mm. and sometimes it was the might, and sometimes it was the kindness, and sometimes it was reversal in nature in this way, by the transformation of water to blood, and other times it was sand into lice. There's different manifestations that you see timed at different intervals which can create a different perspective of the multifaceted power of the neshama but you can never say that's it there's always something beyond something above mm. you can't begin to distinguish the you can see different you can see different for sure for sure any other questions before we carry on in our voyage of discovery it seems it's very hard to um, differentiate, almost nearly impossible, that what something is actually rooted in the neshama and not rooted in one of the other aspects, the seichel or the amidas or the, or the good. Every Everything that's toiv is rooted in the neshama. It uses the seichel, the amidas and the guf to do its bidding. The neshama is kulay toiv. It's all good. Neshama shenosayat be tohoyrahi. It's pure. It has all the koiches in it. It's got, it's got everything inside of it. It's all the good koiches, the neshama. Okay? Now, when you do something good, the goodness emanates from the deepest point of the neshama and it expresses itself through a thought, through a deed, through a speech, through an act. That's an expression of a koich of the neshama, if it's good. So when I extend the hand of kindness to you, it means there's a, a kindness in the neshama which expresses itself through me thinking about your plight, through me speaking to you about it, and then through me doing something about it. So that neshama, the koyach of chesed, goes through machshava, dibur, and maisa until it enters in the world. But it's not me. In other words, to try and make it clearer, if a person subscribes to the notion of self-esteem, you are in essence denying the notion of your own spiritual existence and cutting off the most fundamental part of yourself. Because you're basing your sense of self on the outer peri the periphery of who you are. And then again, there's, there's levels. There's, of course there's levels. There's the people we said yesterday who base their sense of self on possessions, which is the most ex extended, the furthest extended ra range of self, then the people that base it on their clothes, then the people who base it on their bodies, then the people who base it on their 
acts, then the people are based on their emotions, then the people are based on their intellect. And all of those are perhaps getting closer and closer to the real self, but they never get there. And the ironic thing is, when you base your sense of self on your essence, on your neshama, so then yourself stops to take up place. There's no, there's no, there's no, it doesn't take up any place because it's not quantifiable. It becomes absolutely simple. And that's when a person starts to touch on that most amazing character trait, that beautiful level, that level of sublime existence called humility, anova. Whereby you take up no space. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't compete. You don't, you don't rub shoulders. You just, you're there, but you're not there. You don't rub anyone else up wrong because you don't take up space. You don't intrude. You don't conflict because your sense of self is so ethereal. It's so simple. It doesn't need to compete. It doesn't need to. Doesn't need to take on form and, and battle and struggle and. The sense of self is deep, 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 deep. And that's when you start to live in the world of Anova, of Menuchas Nefesh, without the worries and the concerns. You're completely present in the here and now in the most deepest possible fashion. And that's the sublime level of living that we can strive towards. And until we've actually acknowledged that that part of us exists, we can never actually move forward towards it. And that's, I believe, the deepest tragedy of the, the widespread pandering of self-esteem. It's being sold at every little shtibel and kiosk around the world, saying this is what you need, this is how you build. And in fact, it destroys us. It destroys our connection to anything real in the eternal sense of the word. And therefore, I think what we have to do is we have to learn to define and, sorry, to relate to the self beyond. And then the way we relate to our talents and achievements is not as owning them, but as looking at them and seeing how the greatest in self can express itself in a variety of different areas. And that, I think, is, is a deep and powerful quest. In terms of, yes, it's nice to talk about it, but how do you actually do it? So, of course... Doing it is always the hard part. And luckily that's not the focus of our share. We just talk about it. So we'll just go home now and um, just talk about more things. Shalom. We have to think about doing it. Doing it in a certain way is the easiest and the hardest thing in the world. Because since the most basic component of our existence is our neshama, is our neshama so really it's the thing which is the closest to us but ironically because of that it's the hardest thing to find and to grasp because we don't have the luxury of living without it in order for us to see it appear one of the things which makes life accessible one of the ironic twists of appreciation and acknowledgement is when a person a person can much more fully recognize what he has when he doesn't have it the hardest thing about the neshama is it's with us all day if a person the reason why we can experience and appreciate the joy of elation and happiness is because we can experience depression and loneliness 
The reason why we can feel the bond between two friends is because we can feel the separation. The reason why we can appreciate the light is because we can see the darkness. And therefore, it's very difficult to see something if that's all you've ever had. And we can't really step out of our neshamas. We can step out of our actions, our thoughts, our, our emotions. But to step out of our neshamas, it's, it's too manifest. So on the, on the one hand, it's the most basic thing about who we are. On the other hand, it's the hardest thing to feel because we've never been without it. So how do you access something like that? So the first step is is to start to see and evaluate for ourselves where we feel our essential identity lies. Does my identi- identity lie in the clothes I wear, in the things I do, in the way I feel, in the way I think, in my intellectual acumen, in my aptitude for sciences? Is that where I pride myself? And in order to do that, we have to send ourselves on a little bit of a research mission into our deeper selves. And we have to think, what do I feel like when I put on my clothes? What happens when I relate to clothing that I feel is inappropriate for me? So we see that our identity is tied into our clothes. And the truth is, when I look at my watch, it's not that I just see a piece of metal with a mechanism which makes a second hour and minute hand go down. I see me. It's my watch. It's a very natural thing. As the Gemara says in relation to theft, when you steal even a small amount of money, it's like you stole the person's soul because our property becomes very much an expression of identity. So to say that identity rests purely in our possessions that may be going too far but to say that it doesn't rest in our possessions at all that would also be going too far we do feel we do identify with our possessions very strongly I think we identify very strongly with our emotions I was angry with him I was so in love I felt so overwhelmed I loved it when they spoke that way about me I, 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 I so we do identify with our emotions I'm we don't say this, of course, to the public. I'm so clever. I'm so brilliant. I'm so astute. We just say it to ourselves, especially when we were learning the Chavrusas, and we say, he's so stupid. I'm so clever. <laughs> I'm so, so clever. In fact, I love learning with him because his stupidity contrasts my sheer genius. Ah, it's wonderful. <laughs> so we do identify and rest our identity in our thoughts and our emotions and our deeds. How do we slowly but surely shift? Shift slowly. Imagine if we could. Imagine if we could shift that identity totally into Neshama, whereby your possessions would be, you'd be able to, you'd be able to say, you know what, you need this watch more than I do, take it. I can't do that right now because I say, I can't do that, I'll be losing a chunk of myself can't do it. This is me. I can't let go of it. But imagine if you could. Just let go of it. Just let it go. It must mean that that's not you. Because you can't let go of yourself. You can never let go of yourself. You can only let go of that which is not you. So now you have a new focus and a new means and a new lens of perceiving the greats of our generation and the previous generations that had the capacity. The Chaim Briska 
who literally people understood him even though he's famous for his incredible contribution to the study of Talmud introducing a completely revolutionary way of dissecting and analyzing different concepts within the Gemara but people don't know about his personal life his home was so open to the poor and the unwanted that he came home one day and a young mother with her four children I think it was four children had moved into his living room literally set up camp in the corner so he welcomed them and asked permission they just knew they knew he literally had I don't know how many but it was four or five or six or ten children babies placed on his doorstep because everyone was sure that if it was an unwanted child he would take care of them how did you do that? How did he, if I'm not mistaken, I've forgotten the exact story, but he would give up his own bed. I can't give up my bed. It's me. I can't let go of it because I find myself in it. But if my identity rested somewhere else, so then it's not me. You can have my bed with pleasure. My bed. It's a bed. It's not mine. It's not me. It's not an expression of myself. My essence is located. I use it as a vessel for. So now I'm using it as a vessel for that. Previously I used it as a vessel for, for lying my body on it. And now I'm using a vessel for lying your body on it. What's enough coming Your body, my body. Who cares? In other words, what I'm suggesting is that without this capacity to relate to the innermost part of self, we'll always be fighting the wrong battle. We'll be wrestling in the world where we're ready, even if we win, we lose. Because we, we're not there. That's not who we are. We'll be denying the real essence of our spirituality, the essence of our being. And that will be tragic. And as long as we don't know this, if we don't know this, if we don't at least have the knowledge, we'll think that we have to live a life where, in other words, if I would give up my bed without this knowledge, the way I would say it, I'm a big tzaddik, I let him sleep in my bed. Whoa! Whoa! What gvura! What chesed! Ugh. Whereas if you're living in that world, there's no, the, the struggle isn't there. There's no struggle. It's just, it's so obvious. That's what you do. Yes, Kelman. But do you, would you say, not say that the Frum world maybe encourages looking and living and identifying yourself by how you dress, for example, or how you act or how you um, behave? Okay, Kelman. What you associate with. What, you what do. you're doing is you, because of your own personal issues, desecrating the content of this year by bringing into it the nitty-gritty trivial details of day-to-day -day life in terms of we discussing on an ethereal level the ideal of what a person should strive to be and you bringing it down to but one second those guy wears his clothes who cares the clothes you are Let's not talk about, again, what we're talking about now is we're talking about the ideas, correct? We said that from the start. We talked about the ideas. And we're presenting a model of self which then can lead to. That's the topic of the discussion. The topic of the discussion isn't modern couture culture or antiquated couture culture. The discussion, the discussion isn't here ethical dress or even ethnic dress. The discussion over here isn't what type of color scheme you should choose in the morning. Even though I believe those things are important. For me personally, of course. I agonize in the wardrobe in the morning. Should I, should I choose white? Hmm. How about cream? No, 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 no. How about 
you know, do you know how many shades of white there are? They are white and light white and, and also my shirts each have their own personality. There's the one that's got the ink stain slightly above the pocket, slightly <laughs> below the pocket. There's the one with the slightly broken button. It's, uh, it's agonizing. <laughs> and that's before we move on to trousers. For Americans that means pants. Um, this, this, this type of, this shade of black, the one where the, the sewn up stuff at the bottom is gently unraveling. You feel that it's a day to express perhaps pleats, the pleats. pleats, no pleats. I mean, these are all major, major. I mean, there's, there's, there's no end to the diversity of choice. Um, but that's not a discussion, Carmen. Okay. And it shouldn't be. And I hold you personally responsible for making it that. Yeah. And I'll forgive you for it. Okay. In the spirit of Vainashana. Um, so, <laughs> gentlemen, I think that's something to, to begin to contemplate, to to start chewing on that idea, see how, see how it tastes. Chew on that idea, I think it's vital, I think it's relevant, I think it's something we all have to do, and I bid you all happy searching. <laughs>